This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. We posit a Pascal wager in the treatment of spinal cord injury. The options are to decompress early or not. Although literature can be cited to defend a delay in surgical decompression, there is not a benefit in doing so. On the other hand, the possible gain to be made from early decompression is too great to ignore clinically. Therefore, we ask the question, if a hospital does not perform early surgery for spinal cord injury, including central cord syndrome, is it truly a trauma center? Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast, where today I am delighted to be joined again by Dr. David Aconquo. Dr. Aconquo is at the University of Pittsburgh, where he's the Director of Neurotrauma and Scoliosis and Spinal Deformity. He's been on the show before, early on in episode 28, talking about the role of neurosurgeons in trauma care here in the States, as well as when he was the head of the trauma section, talking about uh, that section's role with an organized neurosurgery. And Dr. Conco, I hope you don't mind. I stole your best line for the whole interview right out of the gate. But you, sir, are a master of the hot take. So I know that you'll have more for us. Welcome back to the show. JP, it's a pleasure to be back. And I am grateful for the invitation. This is a topic that is of extraordinary importance. It is near and dear to my heart. Dr. Harry Mushlin and I put a lot of thought and uh, energy and effort and heart into uh, the editorial that we wrote about the fantastic paper that Jatan Badawala and Michael Failings published about early surgery for central cord syndrome in particular. It's an honor to be here, and uh, I'm, I'm very much appreciative of the fact that you uh, highlight you know, what, what our central message was. Absolutely. For our listeners, if, if any of you didn't catch these papers, they were published in September of this year in JAMA. Um, you can find them there easily. Um, so Dr. Conquo, we were talking a bit before starting this recording about the topics I wanted to get into today. And really, it comes down to this modern movement, if you will, this modern thought that time is spine, which is a great catchphrase, but it also gets straight to the heart of what we want to talk about and where I think spinal cord injury care is and should be going um, in the modern era. Um, There's this disconnect that I've heard you speak about on numerous occasions in lectures that we're all privileged to see online through Seattle Science or other educational venues where traumatic brain injury patients and spinal cord injury patients are treated in in very different paradigms um, in terms of the urgency with which most general medical practitioners, but also most neurosurgeons view those two issues in terms of timing for intervention. Maybe for our listeners who aren't as in-depth in this field of thought and with this topic as you and, and as a fan, I am, um, you can kind of set the stage for why this dichotomy exists in your mind. It's very clear to all of us that rapid intervention, neurosurgical intervention for an epidural hematoma or a large subdural hematoma with emergent craniotomy saves lives. In fact, one, one could argue that trauma systems in the United States are specifically structured around two patient populations, the patient in hypotensive or hemorrhagic shock and the patient with an epidural hematoma. We have spent 
50 years maturing a trauma system so that the 19-year-old who falls off his skateboard, hits his head, and has an epidural hematoma doesn't have to die of that injury. And that national effort, that enormous focus, all of the things that are built around that with helicopters, ambulances, 911, level one, level two trauma centers, the entire infrastructure is designed so that that patient doesn't have to die a needless death. What's so fascinating is that no one questions the need for emergent, immediate intervention for an epidural hematoma with brain compression, but we're willing to tolerate these extraordinary gaps in time for the patient who has a spinal cord injury. Modern evidence is making it harder and harder to justify anything other than immediate spine intervention for the patient with a neurologic deficit referable to spinal column injury. The evidence will never be delivered through a randomized prospective trial, but it doesn't change the fact that the preponderance of evidence so heavily favors early intervention that we just have to keep plugging away at this uh, sea change, at this um, just doubling, tripling, and quadrupling down on the commitment to maximizing what, it, what we can do for that particular patient population. So I, I've been so curious in the past few years of my training as I get deeper into this field as to how we got to this place with this dichotomy that you describe. I have my pet theories and, and I'm not sure that there is a you know demonstrable answer for this, but I'm curious for, for your thoughts of it as well. So sometimes I say to myself, well, the epidural hematoma patient you're describing, the cranial epidural hematoma that will cause, that's a life or death problem. Whereas spinal cord injury, while it can be life-threatening, more often the outcome is a quality of life or quality of function um, rather than life or death. Um, on the other hand, sometimes I say to myself, well, cranial trauma has always been in the hands of neurosurgeons and neurosurgeons are used to dealing with life and death cranial trauma. Whereas spine surgery historically going way back was more so in the hands of orthopedic surgeons before neurosurgery moved in. So there may be some lingering holdover effect where um, surgeons who weren't used to this level of acuity get up in the middle of the night and decompress the nervous system were the main providers for spinal cord injury patients and spine trauma for decades. And now neurosurgeons come in and, and we're used to doing middle of the night emergencies. So maybe there's some carryover effect where spinal cord injuries and spinal column injuries were not always these middle of the night emergencies. Those have been the two best pet theories I could think up, like, like I said, but I'm curious what your thoughts are, Dr. Conquo, for why there exists this dichotomy that we see today. I think that um, we've never been in a situation like we are now where uh, there really is clear and convincing evidence across multiple domains that show that early intervention for spinal cord injury makes a difference. And mentioned uh, 
uh, the paper from Michael Failings and, and Badawala in JAMA surgery in, in September of, uh, of 2022, where they were looking specifically at central cord syndrome. But the folks at, at UCSF, Jay Dahl, Jeff Manley, have also shown some really, really compelling evidence recently about if you keep driving this upstream. So if you redefine early surgery from, from 24 hours to 12 hours and earlier, the earlier you push it, the more likely the person is to have a conversion in their Asia grade or an improvement in their neurologic function. Hmm. And, and so as we gain this clarity, um, it's just harder and harder to push back on. But your question is a fantastic question about what's the history of all of this. And, and it's really remarkable that, that 60 years ago, surgery, early surgery was considered to be within seven days for spinal cord right. injury. In more modern times, it's within 24 hours. And in my humble opinion, we need to start defining early intervention for spinal cord injury by how fast do you get into the OR from the trauma bay? And people can start setting expectations for themselves to say, within 90 minutes of a patient's arrival in the trauma bay, if you have a neurologic deficit referable to spinal column injury, you're not only in the operating room, you've cut skin within 90, page, 90 minutes of that patient's arrival. We are in a perfect position to actually start setting those kinds of benchmarks and measuring ourselves against those benchmarks. And I do believe that there is a groundswell of providers, both neurosurgical and orthopedic providers in the world of spine who are committed to those concepts. It, it's been something that has been really touching um, for me as the years go by in my career that when I'm in educational situations and I'm positing these kinds of, of, of questions, I'm getting more and more and more higher and higher percentages of the audience saying, our practice is just to go straight to the operating And that was simply not the case 10 years ago. So I do think that the paradigm shift is happening in front of our eyes. I am, I am just thrilled to see so many people at your stage of training who recognize this and who recognize that that's really the only justifiable answer, who understand that if this were your sister, this were your brother in the trauma bay, you would want nothing else other than immediate neurosurgical intervention or spinal cord injury, and that we have to be willing to do the same thing for any patient, not just one of our loved ones who would uh, suffer from one of these, you know, tragic injuries. Right. It's, it's a point well taken um, on the evolution, not just in our care, but the evolution of what we called early surgery. And, and as you said, how it, decades ago, seven days was considered early. Um, and, and I think a point is frequently made that we've just got better at doing these surgeries. We have better approaches, better techniques, better anesthesia, more experience. Um, I think uh, Jim Harrop, Dr. Harrop frequently makes a comment about the original paper describing central cord injury, the Schneider paper from back in the 50s, where he describes one of the most extensive uh, definitions of the word decompression that, that you can imagine. He's cutting dentate ligaments and things. And so imagining doing that at two in the morning in an acute trauma patient, um, you know, 
I'm sure that the outcomes of doing such an extensive complex surgery at two in the morning versus doing a more straightforward, modern approach decompressive surgery, of, of course, we've gotten better at doing these things and therefore it is safer to do it as early as, as needed. Um, but that makes me wonder, Dr. Conquo, what you think the key step in the cascade from the, the, in the field where the trauma occurs to where you're cutting skin in the operating room, there are a series of steps that can have delay anywhere along the chain where the patient's handed off. Um, mentioning Dr. Harrop, he did a great paper uh, some years back looking at difference in transfer times between various groups of trauma patients in Pennsylvania State, where you practice. And he saw that spinal cord injury and spine trauma patients in particular had higher transfer times compared to cranial trauma, compared to abdominal trauma, you name it. Those were the slowest patients to make it to the hospital. And so I wonder how significantly can we as surgeons impact that system-wide uh, failure, you could say, to treat these patients with the urgency that it seems we know they demand? That's another great question. And we have multiple mechanisms to actually go after that. So the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma uh, now issues uh, these, these quality improvement guidelines that are evidence-based practice guidelines setting standards and expectations for performance of, of trauma centers. Um, they're the initial TBI, TQIP guidelines, as they're called, Trauma Quality Improvement Program guidelines were issued a few years back. And then in the last year, the first edition of the spinal cord injury TQIP guidelines were, were issued. Um, Alex Vaccaro had uh, a major leadership role in that, um, and as did several folks in Philadelphia, including Jim Harrop and Jim Schuster and Bill Welsh, and fantastic colleagues, Shelly Timmons. We had, a, we had an amazing group of, of people um, putting input into that. And what though, that's an, a, an excellent mechanism where you can start to define those benchmarks that I mentioned earlier. So for example, in my institution, we have a benchmark that any patient with an intracranial mass lesion must have their incision performed within 60 minutes of arrival to the trauma bay. And every single month, I have to answer to my general surgery trauma colleagues for any TBI patient who requires emergent cranial surgery who does not have a skin incision within 60 minutes of arrival. Hmm. Our first foray for spinal cord injury has been to say, we're going to set a benchmark of 12 hours that an incision must be made within 12 hours of arrival. Okay, so where does that come from? My personal opinion is that we should be setting a 90-minute benchmark, but we have to, we have to, we have to walk uh, before we can run. Right. And, and, you know, so if you take that concept of crawl, walk, run, I'm just delighted that we have, we have set our first benchmark. And now we can then iteratively as a center say, what are the factors that are, that are impacting our time to intervention? And over time, we need to drive that 12 hours down to 90 minutes, if not 60 minutes um, for ourselves. And I think that we will get from 12 hours to 60 minutes much faster than 
you know, the, the, the two and a half decades it took to get to 60 minutes for the, for, for the TBI population as an internal benchmark. Um, but for everyone who's working in a trauma center, who's listening to this podcast, you should take advantage of your internal local trauma quality improvement programs to start setting benchmarks that would then lead to audit filters that then lead to active overt discussions about what performance expectations are for your center as you try to maximize care and outcomes for the neurotrauma population. That's phenomenal. I really like that you use time to incision and not just time to uh, getting in the operating room. Um, I, I think a very frequently, um, at least hospitals I've worked at and papers I've read, time to OR is frequently a metric that's used. But once you get in the room, there's any number of delays that everyone involved could be responsible for. We, we not moving quickly enough as surgeons, um, techs and nurses getting set up, trays open, anesthesia getting lines and everything. So time to incision is a great metric to target. I wonder, since you rolled out this new goal of 12 hours to incision, um, and you say you have to answer for those cases where you don't meet the goal, what have you seen is, uh, what, what have you seen are the most frequent reasons why you don't meet that goal? Because as you say, anyone listening at a trauma center who may want to start going down this road and starting a system like this, it may be helpful to know what to anticipate. Um, is it a polytrauma patient who it's difficult to position or to get clearance from other services? Is it um, line and access issues? What, what do you usually see causing these delays? I'm very proud that as we have looked at our own internal performance, the first thing that's just jumped right out at us is that we've done so well here that it's actually very, very rare for someone to fall outside of this audit filter of 12 hours to incision. Hell yeah. And, and, and so when we get to the first year of tracking this and we realize that, that it's so rare for us to fall outside this 12 hours, that means that we instantly need to cut it in half. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> from my perspective, you know, the, the best case scenario here would be that it's the rare isolated patient that falls out of outside of 12 hours to incision, which means overnight we can make it six hours for year two. That, that's, what yes. I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. But um, there's a few things. There, there are actually some, some very practical things that make a huge difference here. N number one, we are minimizing the use of MRI as a uh, decision criterion for surgical intervention. And in the overwhelming majority of circumstances, the, the CT scan is sufficient information to understand why the person has, has a neurologic deficit and what to do about it. And right. so minimizing the use of, of MRIs uh, has an enormous uh, net positive influence on what our timing statistics look like. We have great colleagues, you know, Bijan Arabi at University of Maryland, who has spent a career delivering amazing, amazing learning about the role of MRIs in, in the world of spinal cord injury. And, you know, Thomas Jefferson, which you mentioned earlier, University of Maryland, they have these, they have these really fantastic structures put into place that allow them to get rapid MRIs. But those are the outliers. Those are the, those are the rare exceptions. 
in my own institution, if I add an MRI to that patient population, I am adding hours and hours. And so minimizing the use of MRI has, has an enormous influence on our capacity to intervene very, very quickly. Um, but also existing in a collaborative multidisciplinary environment where everybody believes in, buys in, and commits to the mission also is extraordinarily important. So my general surgery trauma colleagues uh, believe in this very strongly and are phenomenal partners. Our anesthesia colleagues understand what it is we're trying to achieve and work with us, you know, to hit these benchmarks. So when, for example, in the, you know, for the patient with the, with the emergent subdural hematoma, you know, they're putting in femoral lines after we've made the incision. We're not when we get to that operating room, we have 60 minutes to make that skin incision. I can't stand there and watch an anesthesiologist get a central line before I do something. It's all happening in serial, in, uh, sorry, in parallel instead of in serial, for example. Right. So when you have strong local champions on the spine surgery side who work in wonderful multidisciplinary collaborative environments, when you collectively set standards and expectations for yourself and yourselves, and then you're willing to measure your center against those standards and expectations, this can be achieved. And it's really, really not that complicated to get better. Right. Well, Dr. Conquo, we've, we've looked at the field today and, and looked back a bit to get a sense of how we got here. So as we wrap up this conversation, maybe we can look ahead. There are so many exciting new paradigms in spinal cord injury care. Um, this conversation has really been centered around time to decompression, but um, there's so many exciting things in terms of biologics, in terms of implants and scaffolds for neuronal regrowth. Um, we've corresponded over the past year about spinal cord perfusion pressure as a new target for monitoring, perhaps with therapeutic drainage. Um, I wonder if you could maybe just pick one to highlight for our listeners today as a gold star or intervention or field of interest in spinal cord injury care looking at the next five or 10 years of development. From my perspective, the most powerful thing that people could gravitate towards right now that's readily available is this evolution towards management of spinal cord perfusion pressure, which you mentioned. And I say that because some of these other fantastic things, cell-based therapies, scaffolds, biologics, the immunotherapy, we, we've just started our first immunotherapy trial for, for spinal cord injury. Um, we, have, we have some really exciting things in the pipeline. Those will make their impact over a much more protracted period of time. But there are things that can be done right now where the early indices are that they make a meaningful difference in outcomes. And so I would put at the top of the list the use of lumbar drains, management of intrathecal pressure, calculation of spinal cord perfusion pressure, which is mean arterial pressure minus intrathecal pressure, and then structuring your hemodynamic management of the spinal cord injury patient around spinal cord perfusion instead of mean arterial pressure. That is something that any trauma center in the United States is capable of achieving right now as it stands in November of 2022. 
That's phenomenal. And, and as I've told you, Dr. Conquo, I was first exposed to the concept of spinal cord perfusion pressure in one of your lectures on YouTube, which you mentioned, you mentioned it just at the tail end and probably more than anything else professionally, that concept has, um, it, it has been an intellectual obsession of mine in the past year. Um, so I, I am very glad to hear you promoting that as the single thing to focus on. And, and as you say, any trauma center is capable of uh, calculating and manipulating these values. Um, I would be remiss before wrapping up if I did not request at least one David Aconquo hot take. So if I could, Dr. Aconquo, steroids for spinal cord injury, what are your thoughts? Well, that's an easy one. Wow. Uh, okay. In, uh, in, the, in the first edition of the guidelines for management of spinal column trauma, there was, uh, you know, this, this, this level three recommendation that's, that steroids were an option for patients with spinal cord injuries. Then that got morphed in 2013 to a, a level one recommendation against the use of steroids, which I think was an overreach. And then if you understand the data that actually drove the discussion. So if you understand where these, where these controversies are derived from, what you would know is that in those old NASCIS trials, it was young patients with incomplete injuries who most benefited from steroids. And as such, it is still a, a, an intervention that I continue to employ in my practice, in our center, specifically for those patients who are frankly going to be at least risk for the, the downstream in, in, um, implications of, of high-dose steroids, but have the highest likelihood of benefit. And if you can just give an incomplete spinal cord injury patient one or two extra levels of function in the cervical spine, you radically change their independence for the rest of their life. And as you know, I, I also you know, take care of, of professional athletes, and we have made sure that this is part and parcel with our our protocols that we review and re-implement every year um, for, uh, for professional football, that if a professional football player sustains a spinal cord injury, you're talking about a young, supremely healthy uh, physical specimen who is going to get steroids in my hands, for sure. So I think it's important for us to just be prudent about this and be willing to recognize full spectrum of the data, that these aren't absolutes, they're not black and white answers, and you can be judicious and careful and smart in the application of these various treatment options at your disposal to try to do the very best for the specific patient in front of you. Not for every patient in, in, in the world of spinal cord injury, but for that patient in front of you that day. Well said. Well, Dr. Conquo, uh, as I told you before we got on, I think I'm going to call this episode controlled aggression or something like that, because I, I think that the through line for all of these concepts we discussed, be it medically, interventionally in monitoring or time to surgery, um, I think the through line for what I've always heard you talk about and what I've heard you talk about today for these patients is to be more aggressive in delivering care and doing the things that we know work. Um, if anyone listening has thoughts about anything we've talked about today and would like to respond, you can always reach us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from our listeners, um, but 
with that said, Dr. Conquo, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.